I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Face to Face. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community and communities create social change. I'm David Peck and this is Face to Face. So I met Ron Coleman recently at a conference here in Toronto at Humber College called Getting uh, Beyond GDP. Not Getting Beyond GDP, but it was called Beyond GDP. The idea was that it was about alternative measures to progress. And Ron was very instrumental in starting something called the Genuine Progress Index. And it was a way of approaching development from a more holistic or a more relational perspective. And so in this interview, he talks a lot about growth. He talks about alternatives and he talks about the architects of GDP, gross domestic gross domestic product and and who who actually saw its limitations and saw its shortcomings and he spent he spent a lot of time in Bhutan he's worked alongside the former prime minister of uh, Bhutan where they speak a lot about gross national happiness that's Jigme Tinley by the way he talks about how he wants to see economic indicators he wants to see development corresponding to lived 
reality. I think you're, and he, he also talks uh, about trickle up economics, which I think is pretty interesting. You're going to enjoy this. Ron's an academic, he's a writer, he's a teacher, he's a speaker. And uh, we're talking about happiness today. Uh, today, what, what, where's, where's the downside in that? Well, welcome to Face to Face. Today's guest is Dr. Ron Coleman. He's the uh, founder and executive director of GPI Atlantic. Ron, thanks for joining us today. Oh, glad to be here, David. So you are you're back in Canada, but you've been spending the last couple of years of your life in in Bhutan. Is is that uh, is is that going to continue for you? Uh, yeah, it's actually more than a couple of years. I um, I've been in Bhutan for quite a while. I was I first went um, uh, to do to work there about uh, what eleven and a half years ago, and then I was there for about. Um, uh, five or six years uh, on a part-time basis, but since uh, 2009, have been uh, living there most of the time. So uh, uh, it's actually about uh, close to six years of being there uh, most of the time. Most of the time. So I want to talk a little bit, Ron, about what GPI Atlantic is, about the Genuine Progress Index, about gross national happiness. You were in Toronto for a conference at Humber College with uh, former Prime Minister Jigme Tinley from Bhutan, with a bunch of other um, speakers, and uh, 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 we had about uh, 200 people all in come out to this event to talk about this idea of getting beyond GDP, getting beyond gross domestic product in the areas of economic and just international development. I, could, I guess you could say. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what GPI Atlantic really is all about, and and and, and uh. maybe the and maybe the the genesis of that. Yes, sure. Um, so I, I was um, a professor at uh, State University of New York, um, and uh, you know, for many years, and then uh, and then moved to um, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and was uh, teaching there at St. Mary's University. And over those years, um, had gradually done. Uh, more reading about alternative measures of progress, hmm. uh, recognizing the uh, flaws of GDP and um, the, the need to come up with, with with better and more robust and more comprehensive measures. And um, over the years, what struck me is that um, tremendous progress had been made on the data and the methodologies and the capacity we now have to measure um, how we're doing more accurately from an ecological, social, and economic perspective. And um, uh, But what struck me at the same time is um, that I couldn't find any place in the world where these measures had really been implemented in practice. Hmm. So tremendous um, work had been done over, you know, since the 1960s and 70s, um, 80s on... Uh, on actually developing these measures, and uh, it's not that we were by no means, um, you know, early on in recognizing the inadequacies and shortcomings of relying on GDP. That was that's been recognized for a very long time, but we didn't have um, uh, good forest inventories and uh, measures of greenhouse gas emissions and uh, fish stock inventories and time use surveys. We didn't have the tools and the data um, to actually measure our well-being and progress and, more comprehensively. And, but and Ron, is, by that the, because, uh, and is that because is that because it was an academic dysfunction or was that because the sort of the corporate world just wasn't interested at the time? Oh no, no. Uh, it it was a, a very practical issue. It was that the pioneers in pointing out the flaws of uh, GDP were, uh, I mean, their contribution was precisely in in bringing greater recognition of the importance of environmental and social and human data. That so uh, it, it was so it was their interest and analysis and critique that that then led to the development of uh -huh. of good environmental measures. So they, in fact, those early pioneers made a tremendous contribution in. Um, beginning to generate the data and the methods for measuring progress more holistically, more comprehensively. So uh, we could not have done any of the work uh, we've done in the last 20 years 
without that prior work of the previous 20, 30 years. In fact, quite frankly, um, the shortcomings of GDP were recognized by its own architects. This is wow. really important to understand that the problem is not with GDP. It's never been with GDP. The problem with um, is the way that GDP has been misused for a purpose for which its architects never intended. So Simon Kuznets, um, Nobel Prize winner, um, said at the time, and he was one of the main architects of national income accounting, of, of uh, what we know as GDP, um, he said at the time that you should never use this as a measure of well-being, that mm. GDP can only tell you what's growing. It can never tell you, um, you know, whether that's uh, beneficial to society or right. not. Right. Because anything can make GDP grow. More spending on war, more spending on, um, uh, you know, the more pollution you have, the more sickness you have. Sure. Just sure. the fact that you're spending money doesn't tell you whether things are getting better. And Simon Kuznets himself said, you always have to ask, what is growing? You can't just take a, a gross measure uh, of growth and say that that constitutes progress. So even the architects of GDP recognized its shortcomings. And in fact, I have to say this, that, that one of the founding members of our GPI Atlantic Board of Directors, um, Hans Messenger, the Director of Input-Output Measures and Industry Measures at Statistics Canada, was the person in Canada in charge of putting out the monthly GDP statistics. And he joined our board because he was so close to GDP that he recognized he was one of our main advisors all the way through from beginning to end um, because he recognized its own shortcomings. So I, I want to emphasize this that because I think it's, it's something that's very often um, misunderstood that, uh, you know, we're, we're not breaking any new ground by recognizing the shortcomings of GDP. But what we can do in this day and age that was not possible to do beforehand was to actually measure progress properly, more comprehensively, more holistically. See, 20, 30 years ago, policymakers might have had an excuse for, um, you know, having a very narrow focus on, on what constitutes progress, namely, is the economy growing or not? But they no longer have that excuse because now we can measure things uh, far more accurately and comprehensively. So basically, the purpose of our work with GPI Atlantic was quite simply to uh, take the very best of what existed and turn it into a, uh, a very um, usable, practical tool that policymakers could, could use as a guide to policy to produce the kinds of evidence um, needed uh, to produce better policy than we're getting. So... so the genuine progress index then is a tool uh, for governments, for, um, for for local governments, for federal governments to say, let's let's take another look at the way we're doing things currently. Exactly. And and would you, is it fair to say, uh, Ron, that you're injecting a little bit more um, relationship into the index itself? You know, sometimes I've heard the phrase, you know, that we measure what's easy and not what's meaningful. And so, you know, the numbers side of things is that's that's easy. But when it comes to stuff like you know relationship and environment and climate and so on, these are these are a little harder to put numbers to. Well, um, interestingly enough, and this is why I, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that the methodologies have also really really improved. So things which used to be regarded as quote unquote soft measures mm -hmm. are now very very measurable. So sometimes people. You know, they, they think that environmentalism has to do with tree-hugging, but, but no. Right. We now have very robust, good forest inventories where we can tell. We can look at the numbers, and we can actually look at the trends in the uh, composition of a forest. Do we have the same age structure, the same species structure um, that we once had? And if we find that... Um, multi-species, multi-age forests, old-growth forests are being replaced by single-age, single-species plantations. We actually have the forest inventory data in hard numbers to show that we no longer have the same quality forests that we used to have. And if our old-growth forests are being replaced by um, single-age, uh, single-species plantations, 
then we can actually measure in scientific terms what are the uh, losses in carbon sequestration value, in um, nutrient cycling value, in the, the various functions of a forest. So we've gone way beyond the kind of um, right. tree-hugging yeah, yeah, mentality exactly. where yeah. we, can really, uh, we, we can really track what's the quality of tree, our... Tree-huggers with well, calculators say, run. Exactly. And <laughs> let me give you another example when you said relationship. So Statistics Canada over the years... Uh, by the way, Statistics Canada is ranked, um, has been, I mean, until <laughs> all these recent budget cuts, but um, was ranked as the number one statistical agency in the world. And one of the reasons is a lot of their innovative work. So they have questions um, on surveys now, uh, like, uh, is there someone that you can rely on in a time of crisis? Is there someone who makes mm-hmm. you feel loved? And, mm-hmm. and with a composite battery of questions like this, they can come up with a composite measure which they call social supports. Mm -hmm. And using that measure, they can actually track the level of social support. So, for example, the highest level of social supports in Canada are in um, Newfoundland and Labrador and in the Maritime Provinces, much higher, for example, than than in Ontario, because there are closer-knit families, closer-knit communities. I'm not talking about um, GPI Atlantic here. I'm talking about Statistics Canada actually produces um, good measures of social supports. They produce good measures of what they call time stress, how stressed are people. They have a battery of 10 questions that Stats Canada asks, and based on people's responses to those 10 questions, they now assess whether levels of time stress in the Canadian population are going up or down. And Ron, so who's, and, and who you and Ron, who's using this stuff? I mean, is the is the hope of we do <laughs> <laughs> right? But but is 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 the idea here to to tell a, to 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 preach a new message, if you will, or is this about actually going to um, corporations? Is this is this about accountability? Uh, you know. What's the hope here? I mean, obviously, this is not just an academic exercise. There's this is this no. is going way deeper than that. Clearly, yes. So, so we are. I mean, this is why we've had such a wonderful relationship with Statistics Canada because we are a user of those kinds of data. Now, when you say something new, it's not new. This, the the numbers that we're getting now, the numbers that are available now that weren't available twenty, thirty years ago. But the reason we can do a robust, um, credible GPI these days is because we actually have these data from Stats Canada that we can fold in. Now, none of this is new. The the things we're measuring correspond to people's life experience. People know if they're time-stressed or not. People know whether they feel isolated, whether they feel a sense of belonging in their communities or what. You know, these, these are things that people experience in their actual lives. So we're not reporting on something that's separate from people's felt experience of their quality of life and well-being. These are things which constitute, they're they're the very guts of people's own sense of who they are and what the quality of their lives is. So this is um, um, in some way much closer to people's actual lived experience and simply um, trying to get across this ancient message that, oh, um, the more the economy grows, the better off you are. Well, I don't necessarily feel that way just because right. the economy, GDP went up. Well, I guess What's the to, relationship well, I guess between I think, the GDP? I think, I, think, I think that's why I use the word relationship, you know, because like you say, it's, a, it's more of a, it's a closer measure to how, how people actually live their lives. Exactly. It's very, very real. And when we produced our GPI results, when we rolled them out over a period of 15 years, uh, as we developed this, it took us a long time to put this together in, a, in an integrated, comprehensive way. We found that uh, the media, the general public, people were very, very receptive to our results. It's, it's almost as if the responses we were getting was, Oh, well, we always knew that, but right. we never really had the numbers to back up what we knew to be the case. Well, you know, having, and now we're having studied yeah. philosophy for so many years and 
uh, you know, about, you know, kind of supposedly the high countries of the mind, you know, you're, oh, dear, David, you're, you're all abstract, you're so on. But what's interesting to me is I think what I've learned with some of those sort of um, high-level ideas is actually people know them on a, on a very grassroots level, and when it's put yeah. in a different kind of language or when it's affirmed in a different way, they go, yeah, I've always known that to be true. I just, I just, exactly. it, I just don't call it that, or, or, or whatever the case might be. Yeah, very often what's been anecdotal in the past suddenly becomes um, statistically verifiable. Oh, that's and, an awesome and this, notion. And this makes this is a big deal because, from a policy perspective, they policymakers can't rely on anecdotes. Uh, anecdotes. They need um, they need good evidence. And um, I'll give you one very graphic example. Um, we um, crunched numbers, um, straight economic numbers from, from uh, Statistics Canada and Agriculture Canada sources, and um, tracked the viability of, um, of farming. And we found that um, local farming is becoming less and less economically viable in an era of globalization. It's costing farmers... Uh, more and more uh, to grow their crops, but they're not getting higher prices at the farm gate because now they're competing against cheap produce that's transported thousands of miles with subsidized transportation. Um, and when we produced these results, the um, I, I, it's not an exaggeration to say the Nova Scotia um, uh, Federation of Agriculture, the Farmers Associations, they were ecstatic because um, they said, well, we, we've been saying this for years, that we can no longer afford to farm. It's no longer economically viable for us to do that, but we never had the numbers to, to prove it. And um, so th this is very, very real. It's not, we're not talking about anything soft here. We're right, talking about yeah. hard numbers, and that's why we, that's why we do what we do. It's, it's, uh, it's not because we're, um, we're somehow saying we have something brand new here. It's just that we're, we're actually able now to draw on the data sources needed to demonstrate. Who, who do you want to pay attention to the GPI, Ron, ultimately? Well, ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, the people who make the decisions. Right. Obviously, that would be ideal for policymakers to pay attention. And ultimately, uh, well, there's a little more to it than that. I'll mention in a second. But ultimately, we don't want any decision made in Parliament or in any legislature uh, that doesn't take into account the full social, human, and environmental consequences of a decision. It's no longer enough just to say, oh, this is going to cost us money or it's not right. going to cost us right. money. The old-fashioned, um, you know, just uh, uh, simple economics, is it going to make the GDP grow or not? We're going we're gonna, to... Um, you know, give this company a heap of money to invest here because it'll, I mean, that kind of simple-minded, narrow-minded thinking is way, way out of date now. So we want the decision makers to, to pay attention. Now, in the longer run, in, in the longer run, what really changes people's behavior are price signals. Hmm. That's what, uh, for example, um, higher gas prices uh, some years ago no longer the case, unfortunately, um, got more SUVs off the road faster than the whole environmental movement put together because people could no longer afford to drive gas guzzlers. Right. Now that gas prices are low, um, Wall Street Journal reported a week before last that the auto industry had, quote, never been healthier uh, in the last 15 years. Now, our definition of what a healthy society is, uh, is a little different here from the um, old-fashioned Wall Street Journal sure. definition, because in an era of climate change, is it better? Are we better off by having more gas guzzlers on the road? But um, Wall Street Journal reported that 54% of sales these days were, were the big uh, SUVs and luxury cars. So it's no longer attractive to drive a small car when gas prices are low. So you see, it's very different. The conventional signals tell you that um, uh, low gas prices are good, high automobile sales are good, uh, a healthy automobile industry means lots of um, SUVs are being sold. But from a climate change perspective, that might be questionable. Once you fold 
the climate change equation into your costing apparatus, which is what we do with the GPI. We don't just measure indicators whether things right. are going up or down. We actually try to assess the costs of climate change as part of the costs of driving, for example. So um, from that perspective, things change. They change very radically. And then uh, a wise government would uh, penalize those activities which are harmful, and it would give breaks like tax breaks and other incentives to those activities which are beneficial from a societal point of view. And that, in turn, will affect prices. So let's say, for example, I'm just going to give you one little example, is if when you go and register your car or insure your car, your insurance costs and your registration costs were based on number of kilometers driven in the past year, fuel efficiency of your vehicle, and the most fuel efficient um, uh, vehicles driven for the least number of kilometers would get close to zero registration and insurance rates, and the, the biggest gas guzzlers driven for the longest distance distances would be charged accordingly. Now, overall, there's no tax grab here. It's simply a matter of aligning prices so that they reflect social realities like climate change. Well, isn't, one isn't, this, isn't, Ron, this uh, full-cost accounting? Yes, I'm exactly what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is full-cost accounting. And what makes the GPI a little different from other quality-of-life measures is that it goes beyond indicators and tries to fold those actual benefits and costs into the economic equation. So that's what full-cost accounting does. So the GPI is an effort. You see, GDP is not an indicator. It's a set of accounts. It's a way of accounting. So until we bring these, uh, this full-cost accounting into the economic equation, uh, we're, no, we're never going to affect actual prices. So this is a long-winded answer to your question, Dave, but no, basically we want policy, policymakers to pay attention, but ultimately we actually need full benefits and costs folded into the uh, accounting system. That's an, an additional so, step which will take longer. So I want to talk about the systemic nature of all that and how tough this must be. It's kind of like Sisyphus rolling the rock up the mountain, it seems to me. But before we go there, Ron, does it, does it, it sounds to me like people make decisions based on what things are going to cost, not necessarily based on the right thing to do. And that may, uh, to some listeners, just seem so sort of naive. And, well, yeah, isn't that the way we all behave? You know, I want the cheapest product. I want the best product for the cheapest price, et cetera. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I've often uh, thought that we need to get to a space where people are doing things for the right reasons, not just because it's cheaper. Yeah, well, no, but you see, this is, this is where full-cost accounting comes in. Um, overall things will not be more expensive with a full-cost accounting system. It's just that those things which are socially beneficial will be cheaper. That's where people will save their money. Those things that are socially harmful will be right. more expensive. Right. So it'll shift behavior. So net, on average, um, this, is, this has got nothing to do with any tax grab for government. This is a system which should be revenue neutral, is the phrase we use, uh, in the end, things will even out, but there will be a shift um, from some items to others. Let me give you one example. Locally grown, organically grown food should be the cheapest food on the market, uh, not the most expensive. Right, right, it's right. a price distortion that locally grown food is the most, ex uh, you know, and, and uh, organically grown food is the most expensive. It shouldn't be. Why not? Because if you fold in the full costs of transportation, including mm -hmm. um, in-house gas emissions, air pollution, refrigeration costs in warehouses, and so on. If, if the true costs of bringing an apple from Chile um, were to be included in the cost of that apple, um, then that apple should be about three times the price of a locally grown apple, right. where there's no transportation, there's minimal greenhouse gas emissions, and if the quality of soil were taken into account mm -hmm. in the cost of the apple, then if you 
pump in artificial fertilizers and chemicals into the soil, which depletes the quality of the soil, kills the beneficial microorganisms, and in the future makes that soil drier and less productive. If that were included, then organically grown produce, which enriches the soil and makes it better and more productive over the longer term, should be cheaper. So in other words, by bringing full costs, the costs of um, you know, the costs and benefits of soil quality, transportation, savings on greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution. If those costs were folded in, then uh, we would be buying uh, locally grown, sustainably produced uh, produce. So that's just one of, you know, thousands of examples. So it's not a matter of um, uh, people's bills going up. It's a matter of them shifting from things which are artificially subsidized when you ignore true costs. So right now we're artificially subsidizing transportation. But, you know, in the end, all of this makes the economy way less efficient. So let's suppose you don't include the costs of pollution. Um, Then in the end, government's going to have to step in with a heavy hand um, with using taxpayer money to clean up pollution costs. If the price of that item were to include the true costs of pollution, then that would be incorporated into the way of doing business. That would make the economy far more efficient than it presently is. Isn't, Ron, isn't that, though, where maybe some of the tree-huggerish kind of criticism comes into play from a corporate perspective? So I'm a, I'm a mining company, I'm big, I'm big Pharma, I'm whatever, and I say to you, you're coming in to say, hey, Mr. Peck, we got to create full cost. We, you know, we need to look at the full cost here with respect to the products that we're creating. And I say, no, I just, I'm not, I'm not there yet, Ron. I don't, I don't, I don't buy your argument. I'm not, I'm, I'm not on your side. I don't care about the environment enough. Does, is that- well, it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of caring about the environment. So for example, um, uh, there's, the economy is not a static thing. So the advent of computers kind of put the typewriter business out of business. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. In other words, things, things change and with new technology and new knowledge and new awareness, then um, priorities shift. And, um, you know, we no longer have a lot of textile manufacturing in, in Canada. And I mean, there's, there's all kinds of uh, shifts that are constantly taking place. We're, mm-hmm. we're not trying to make everything the same forever. We recognize that our economy, our lives, our society is a dynamic, ever-changing process. So we're not talking about anything different here. Yes, maybe doing business in a blind, old-fashioned way that creates tremendous harm to people and society and the planet, uh, maybe that kind of way of doing business is going to be phased out. But other types of business are going to become increasingly more profitable. The example I just gave you, uh, organic farmers will find locally, they'll finally be able to make a living. They'll do well in the marketplace, you know? So, so it's a matter of shifting. Um, let's say smoke-free restaurants or smoke-free bars. That's a new thing. So, yes, some establishments had to change their um, their venue, their atmosphere, their offering, because now that they were smoke-free, they were att- attracting a different kind of clientele. Sure. So maybe they have to adjust their menus, they have to adjust their way of doing business, because the people now coming into smoke-free pubs are not the same as people who we're happy to sit there in a cloud of secondhand smoke. So those businesses had to adjust the way they do business. So just to kind of, um, you know, have a shutdown response of, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to lose money. I mean, that's, that's absurd. Right, uh, right. You, you know, businesses, in order to be viable, in order to stay in business, have to be able to adjust to new realities. And well, the, and, sounds, and the fact that sounds too yeah. like sounds too like there's a there's an innovative kind of, of of angle to this that it seems to me like I mean my son my kids I talk about them all the time in my podcast but they're growing up in a new world in a new environment and in a new you know with new technology and stuff that you and I certainly didn't have uh, the the access to and it, and I think that's changing the way they see the world obviously and how exactly. they, and how they interact with it and so therefore. I don't really like recycling because it's a pain in the neck, but my son and daughter just see it as the way to live. And exactly, you know, and that's that's, that's a per- 
Yeah. Yeah. So that that I mean, uh, on that level, I certainly I'm I'm hopeful with respect to 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 this more more robust and comprehensive approach to indicators. Tell me about Bhutan. So you. Now, but, by a, the way, yeah. David, I want I want to say yeah, that please. I mean, if if we're um if we're out to lunch with some of what we're saying, I mean, if if people want to tell us that climate change doesn't matter, air pollution doesn't matter, um, you know. Uh, you know that if the if the well then of course they might have a case but but we're very very careful um, that every one of our measures is based on um, on the uh, overwhelming consensus of of the science and mm-hmm. when we're trying to everything we produce is is um, corresponds to lived reality which you know I mentioned earlier so yeah. it's not as if um, you know if people really want to take issue. Um, they really have to go to the science. They have to go to the underlying, um, you know, reality of what it is we're measuring. Yeah, sure, sure. Hey, so tell me a bit about Bhutan and your history there. You worked alongside of the prime minister for quite a few years with this whole notion of gross national happiness, which is directly linked, uh, it seems to me, to, to the work that you've been doing and were doing beforehand. Um, and you've stayed. So clearly you're pretty connected. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it was a gradual process, but quite frankly, um, it stemmed from Bhutan's uh, own willingness to actually take the next step with this, namely to to put it into practice. So Bhutan happened to have already um, this philosophy of gross national happiness. And what does that mean? It's simply uh, an integrated way of looking at progress. So uh, many, many years ago, I think it's now about more than 30 years ago, uh, the king of Bhutan at the time said, gross national happiness is more important than gross national product. And what he meant was that um, there are four pillars of gross national happiness, conservation of the environment, sustainable and equitable economic development, um, cultural and social promotion, and good governance. And for Bhutan, progress meant some kind of um, integrated progress across all of those dimensions. And uh, the Bhutanese were arguing that, that this is the way to measure progress. This is to assess, this is the way to assess well-being, um, rather than simply is the gross domestic product growing or not. So right, right. they already had that view. So here in Canada, um, we were operating here as GPI Atlantic um, as a nonprofit, and I have to say, quite frankly, uh, somewhat on the fringe, we were we were kind of knocking at the doors of policymakers. But you know, we had to keep making our case, and we had some big disappointments on that front because um, while they were in opposition um, in Nova Scotia, where we developed this, um, the NDP was uh, gung ho for the GPI, and they kept citing our numbers in legislative debates and they would come to our meetings and you know they were they seemed to be but as soon as they formed a government for the first time um they wanted to prove themselves more conservative than the conservatives because they figured by being as middle of the road as they can they would be more likely to be reelected which they weren't um but so they uh but they somehow somehow the gpi seemed i don't know how to say it maybe too radical for them but as soon as they came to power they were no longer interested so we we found it challenging to um and I could tell you examples at the federal level where we we seem to be on the verge of making some breakthrough at the policy level, but then when push came to shove people wanted to do things the old right. The old it's, way well, that's always been done. Easy, and, Ron, it's just easier, right? Why I mean it's easier for somebody else to deal with it. Let somebody else in the future deal with it. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, yes, yeah. Well, that you just you just put your finger on it in that last remark you just made. Um, easier in the extremely short, narrow term. Um, exactly. But so long as you're willing to say, well, I don't mind if my children bear the cost. I don't mind yeah, if yeah. I live high on the hog and my children yeah. pay the bill. That's great. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But but how many how many parents really feel that way? I, I'm not sure that. Parents really do. Parents are quite used to making sacrifices for their children. And when push comes to shove, I have a feeling that um, if you phrase it in terms of you really want your children to pick up the tab of your indulgence now, I think that people might think twice. Yeah, and yeah. 
I think at the people the people level is not our problem. I, I really don't think that we've never had a hard time communicating this to ordinary citizens, even through the media. People are very open. They're receptive. This, as I mentioned, corresponds to their life. But the policy arena was was you know uh, not not easy to penetrate. It was uh, the political will um, has not been here. But in Bhutan. Uh, they asked us to come and, and help them, um, you know, really work on, you know, developing their more holistic measures of progress. They wanted to implement it and practice it at the, at the policy level. They wanted to develop a, a screening tool for all their policies according to these environmental, social, economic criteria. Um, so it, it was simply a government uh, that had the political will uh, to do what we were trying to do here and what we had developed for Nova Scotia and for Canada. But once we had completed the GPI here, um, what more could we do? Just right. We'd already produced about 120 what we thought were pretty robust and credible reports that weren't really challenged in terms of their, their numbers. And what were we going to do? Um, how much value added would there be in the 121st or 122nd right. Right. report that we produced? And at a certain point, you want to kind of you know, have it used, basically, you yeah, know. Yeah, no, for sure. You can, you can bring a horse to water, they say, but you can't make it drink. Well, it makes so me we to couldn't wonder, make this horse drink. It makes know? me wonder if you had, had had a huge budget for lobbyists and advocates if we'd be in a different place today. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it takes to, to um, you know, to, to break that, to, to actually create or nurture political will. Maybe it takes, you know... David, I hate to say this. I mean, it's, it makes me sound like a pessimist, which I'm, I'm not. In some basic way, I'm not. But, um, you know, people in Canada never thought of water quality. Mm. They didn't, um, they took it for granted. It was not high on their, you know, radar screens until Walkerton. Yeah. You know, and then when the catastrophe happened in Walkerton, Ontario, and, and people were dying, um, from water contaminants in their water supply that they had taken for granted. Suddenly, all Canadians were very concerned about water quality. And I really hope we don't have to face mm -hmm. catastrophes yeah. before people finally wake up. It would be nice if people could see the, um, the signs, the signals, which are getting clearer and clearer. If they could watch the um, orange light blinking and stop before they actually hit the intersection. Yeah, um, yeah rather than speeding up as they get closer to the intersection when there's a red light coming, which is the situation we're in. That in a way, you could look at the GPI as a kind of early warning system, yeah, and sure, sure. people are ignoring the signals right now, and that's very sad. And really, the reason we, we started working in Bhutan, because we thought if there's one sovereign nation in the world that that could set an example, we had thought it might be Nova Scotia, right, right. you know, or one sovereign entity that... Uh, you know, maybe that'll have an effect, and maybe it'll convince others if one nation can actually put this into practice. So that that was our. We just thought that these measures seemed to have more fertile ground there. We were actually asked by the government to to work with them on bringing these into the system. So uh, it was, was something we could not refuse to do. It was a, it was a good opportunity to actually take that next step into the political arena. Arena. So believe it or not, Ron, we're going to have to wrap up soon uh, to, to meet oh, sort of our time frame. But tell me, tell me um, if you can, the work that you're continuing to do in Bhutan. I mean, are you are you hopeful about what's next? I mean, you're sure you know you talked briefly there about being sounding like a little bit of a pessimist, but you're not. I mean, you're a, you're a realist, right? I mean, you've been working in the field long enough to see the the realities, and yet at the same time, you're very much uh, an idealist. It seems to me. So. So, so, so tell me a little bit more about Bhutan. Are, are you hopeful that uh, they are going to continue to be a metaphor and the symbol of, of, of for GNH and, and for, I don't know, for a more healthy way of living? Well, I, I don't know. To be quite frank, I, I really don't know that Bhutan is a, a tiny little country and um, its peoples are no more... Its people are no more saints than anyone else is. And, right. you know, it's, uh, it's uh, developing fast. And, of course, as... As as uh, as they grow and develop, of course, people want their goodies. They want their, you know, their cars and their <laughs> consumer items. And uh, so it's, you know, Bhutanese are humans. 
uh, as everyone else is, and so they're also subject to the same temptation. Now, Bhutan had the advantage of being, um, you know, pretty isolated from the world, so it it developed this philosophy at a time when it had not yet really fully opened its doors to the world, that Bhutan is now part of the global economy, and um, with that comes all the influence of advertising, television and internet are only... um, Mm -hmm. 15 years old in Bhutan. It's very new. But uh, all of this has its influence. And um, so it's hard to know if um, a little country acting on its own can, um, can really be that model or if that's just too high an expectation. I, I'm not sure. I can't answer that, that question. Of course, I would hope so. That I mean, Bhutan has... It, it does. It has done some things which are quite remarkable. So, 50% of its land is under um, full environmental protection. It has, uh, you know, major, uh, you know, in other words, in national parks, 80% of its land is still forested. It, environmental conservation really uh, means something. Right. Very, very practical there. They're, they're really, they're doing that. Bhutan vowed at the Copenhagen Climate Summit to remain a net carbon sink in perpetuity, to always to sequester more carbon than it emits. How many other countries can can actually make that claim and statistically demonstrate it? Well, Bhutan can. So it's not as if they haven't done anything. They they have. They've done a lot, and it's it's commendable. Uh, But whether that can resist... Um, the consumerist era and global yeah. pressures, and uh, that's very, very hard to assess at this point. I, I don't know. So at the risk of uh, oversimplifying this, Ron, what, what are some of the simple things that, that, that you see as steps forward? You know, the, the, you know one, of, one of the things I like to talk a great deal about is this whole idea of incrementalism, you know, the little things making a big difference and... and, and we, you know, we we all have to do our part in some way. It seems to me, and yet many of us don't seem to be engaged on that level, or at least not on the thoughtful level. Anyway, we we you know we might be doing our part because we just do things by rote or whatever the reason you know or whatever it might be the case might be. But what what are some of the things that uh, you know we might be able to do as individuals, cultures, et cetera? Is it is it about advocacy? Is it is it about becoming more environmentally friendly? I mean, where where, do, where does the rubber meet the road? Well, um, I think the rubber does meet the road at that very um, individual level you talked about. No question about that. And you gave your own uh, wonderful example of that, how your your kids have grown up with an awareness about um, uh, waste mm-hmm. and recycling and so forth that, that we didn't have in our generation. So there is there is something just at that level of, of awareness and behavioral change at the individual and household level that, that does matter, matters very, very much. And that uh, I, I am a believer in not in trickle-down economics, but in tri- trickle-up right. economics. And right. I think that those, um, those things at the local level, the community level, um, are very, very significant. So a, a local municipality that um, decides to institute a sustainable waste management system is is setting an example. It's it's doing something from which others can learn. So I think that um, we should never diminish the power of, uh, you know, individuals, small groups, non-governmental groups, local communities um, to take the lead, to be courageous in a way that maybe our national and provincial pro- policymakers, they may not have the the courage to do what, what a local group can do. So I, I think that, that that's one place where the rubber definitely hits the road. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't know what to, you know, that it's, it's a very good question. I mean, um, and it's one that I'm, I'm constantly um, chewing over myself. We, we had taken what we thought were next steps, but you know, maybe we were too impatient. You see, the trouble with incrementalism, David, I, I'm, maybe incrementalism, you know, is, you know, very, very uh, 
worthy from one perspective, but at the same time, um, how much time do we have? Right. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. You know, and if we if we take yeah. steps very slowly, one by one, um, I, I'm not sure the well, luxury guess, of time. You, yeah, that we have. and I think you know, to some degree, I think it depends on on your metaphor and your analogy and so on, and how you get to the position you're in. Because if you've got somebody who's bleeding out on the sidewalk, you're not interested in incrementalism at that point. It's you've you've got to act. You got to you got to dig in, roll up the sleeves, get the person to the hospital, stop the bleeding, and move on. Um, and I think. I think that's kind of what you're talking about. So with respect to some of these, the, the more profound issues of our time, yeah, we, we don't have, uh, we, we can't do baby steps. We've got to be leaping our way there. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, you're quite right. Because, I mean, um, why did um, Hurricane Juan hit Nova Scotia with such incredible force some years ago and create so much devastating damage? Well, I mean, the, the scientists and the meteorologists told us that the waters of the Atlantic were warmer that year. Right. So, you know, was there a climate change effect? That, and what about, you know, Hurricane Katrina? I, we can't say that climate change caused or didn't cause these things, but we, we're starting to get evidence that um, we may not have as much time as we'd like to think we have uh, to make the changes that we need to make before it's too late. Certain trends... Um, especially in the ecological world, are not reversible easily or quickly. And we've reached the tipping point already with, um, with some of these things. We don't have the luxury of, um, of waiting another uh, 20 years, mm. you know, or 30 years before we begin to take some mild action. We're, we're, in many ways, we're at the tipping point already. So, um, on the one hand, while the local incremental moves are, are important, I also think that um, we need some bigger sure. uh, action. You called it, you know, re- really a, a leap, yes. a, big, a major leap at the same time. Yeah. Dr. Ron Coleman is the founder and executive director of GPI Atlantic. He's uh, here in Canada for the next couple of months, heading back to Bhutan soon. He uh, is also, well, actually, you can find out more about him and his organization at gpiatlantic.org. Thanks, Ron, for joining us today. And as usual, barely scratching the surface. Thanks so much. It's really a joy. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you very much for, uh, for getting me on there. Thanks, Dave.